wise men follow him, they rose again. Wise men follow him, thank God for the renegades and the lives they Good morning, Northern Maine. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. Well, hearing this on Saturday... August 15th, halfway through August. And the weather is chance of showers between 7 and 2 Saturday morning. And a chance of showers and thunderstorms after 2. Mostly cloudy. It's going to be a lot of pop-ups. High near 81. Calm wind becoming around 5 miles an hour in the afternoon. Chance of precipitation, 50%. New rainfall amounts between a tenth and a quarter of an inch, except higher amounts possible in the thunderstorms. Now, when they say winds calm, or 5 miles an hour, that's when all the fields get hot, and uh, pavement gets hot, and there's updrafts, and the humidity is up, and you get these buildups, makes cumulus clouds. And when a cumulus cloud erupts, so to speak, you get a large vertical column of warm, moist air goes up and blossoms out at the top, becomes a cumulonimbus cloud. And uh, I'm no, I don't speak Latin. I don't know what nimbus stands for, but but uh, all of that energy is uh, results in static electricity and lightning. So that's. That's where you get these calm winds or calm days with big buildups. And light plane pilots really have to be careful of these because a cumulonimbus cloud can tear your airplane apart. I don't care what kind of airplane you're in. Saturday night, chance of thunderstorms before 7 p.m., mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming mostly clear with a low around 62, calm wind. Chance of precipitation, 30%. We've had four days so far this year when the temperature has been above 60 at sunrise here at the camp on the lake. So it's been a cool summer, nice, nice summer. Boy, did we get dumped on with uh, on the four-wheelers last weekend, but we got soaked. One of those great big... Cumulus clouds unloaded on us. Didn't have, didn't have any lightning right close by, but we got soused by some cold water. Great big fat cold drops. Soaked. Saturday night. Uh, I already covered Saturday night. Sunday high. Sunday with a sunny rather with a high near 84. Calm wind becoming west around six miles an hour in the afternoon. So let. Uh, no mention of any precip. It's going to be a beautiful day Sunday. Sunday night, mostly clear, low around 64. Southwest wind, 3 to 5 miles an hour. Monday, sunny with a high near 87. 
southwest wind, three to eight miles an hour. So we got the Canadian high sliding over us, and you're going to have a few good days. The lowest gas price in the state is $2.35 a gallon in Orono. That's down six cents from last week. And the highest gas price is $3 a gallon in Rangeley. You don't have a lot of competition in Rangeley for gas. That's that's uh, they can charge whatever they want, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people carry spare gas when they have a situation like that. I ran into a couple of guys. Let me finish the gas uh, gas prices. The highest gas price is three dollars in Rangeley. The diesel price. The lowest price for diesel is $2.39 a gallon in Brooks. Boy, I tell you, that must make the truckers happy. I haven't seen $2.39 diesel in a while. And the diesel price is $3.49 at Augusta, at the Irving Station. Now, that's $1.10 more in Augusta for a gallon of diesel than it is in Brooks. And... Doesn't make sense to me. So, uh, talking about gas and gas prices, it used to be that the highest highest price in gas for gas in Maine in the entire state was at Northeast Carry on Moosehead Lake. Now, people would pull into the dock with their boats and see the gas, a very high gas price. And the guy would come out and say, yeah, that's an awful high price for gas. He said, well, you, you just boat right back down to Greenville and they sell it cheaper down there. 18 miles down the lake or whatever it is. He didn't have enough gas to get down there. Well, buy my gas, you can roll, pick it, you know. <laughs> but he had to buy his gas retail. And it, he'd fill 55-gallon drums. And bring him back up in his truck, and then he'd he'd uh, he had a hand crank pump, and somebody he'd fill you know fill up your tank for you. In a graduated cylinder, he'd put five gallons in the cylinder. Had a clear, probably glass. It could have been plastic. But he'd, he'd dump in whatever you wanted, two or three gallons, you'd feel you see you could see it go up in a gauge and it'd turn the valve and it would go down into your boat or into your truck or whatever. And that's reminds me of how it was back in the forties. Back in the forties they still had some gas stations that had those big clear tanks that they'd fill up and you could see that they were putting in exactly six gallons draining down into your into your truck or your car. They still had those. They disappeared, and they got these Tidal V-Doll gas station tanks. Reminiscing a little bit. So, up there, uh, a few miles north of northeast, northeast Cary on Moosehead, is an Elm Pond Township. And there's a nice lodge there at Elm Pond. And I met some hunters. I was up scouting for Musa. And there were two guys there, and they had a road map laid out on the hood of their truck. Not a Delorme Atlas, but a regular old 
Gulf Oil Roadmap. And uh, it was a cloudy day. It wasn't raining, but it was quite cloudy. And uh, I pulled up, and they called me over, and uh, they said, where's the nearest gas station? (laughs) I said, well, I said, the nearest gas station is in Greenville or down to Millinocket, depending on which way you're going. At the time, Northeast Cary, excuse me, the Pittston Farm wasn't selling gas. They do now. But uh, I says, oh, you can go down to Northeast Cary. I says, this guy down there sells gas, but you're going to be paying $2 a gallon. $2 a gallon. I says, well, take it or leave it. You know, he'll, he'll sell you gas, but it's not easy for him to get. It's his gas, and uh, he's not really, you know, he doesn't encourage being in the gas business because he has to go to Greenville more often if he sells too much gas. So he uh well, I told them how to go down there. So they uh, they says, well, this is this is south, and he pointed off to what he thought was south. I said, no, that's west. <laughs> and he said, well, here. So he says, here. Get, he was putting his his compass on the map, okay, on the hood of the truck, <laughs> and the, the needle pointed north right toward the radio on that truck. Which, you know, you think a fellow would know better than to put a, a a compass on the hood of a truck. He'd probably get away with that in a Corvette because it's fiberglass hood. But but uh, not on the on the average pickup trucks. So I see a step over here, and the compass swung around about 130 degrees. I say, "Hey, I call." These two guys were about ready to come to blows over their predicament. They could not agree as to which way to go. And, had no clue. And the map they had, you know, probably came out of the gas station. It certainly didn't show the back roads northwest of of, of uh, Noonocket. But you run into people who are unprepared all the time. Whether you're on a snowmobile, an ATV, or just walking down a dirt road. So, you just be kind to them, you know, and, and you know, kind of give them your best advice. If they don't pay attention to you, that so be it. That's all you can do for them is give them the best of advice. We uh, got into a discussion the other day with a friend of mine, and uh, about the old days in education. You know, we didn't have anything like Common Core. Uh, you know, back a long time ago when I was in school. And I had a prestigious position when I was in the first grade. I was the ink boy. I had a glass jug. You go down in the cellar. You fill the, fill the jug up to a line on the side of the jug. And you get, uh, there was a, a cardboard barrel with a cardboard cover. It probably held... 30 pounds of ink in it. It was a big, a big uh, barrel. And I take a copper funnel and a copper scoop and fill the scoop and shake it so it was level on top. And I pour the ink crystals through the copper funnel into the jug. I take a wooden stick and stir up the jug. 
and uh, set that aside, let it dry. Don't want to get it on yourself, get it on your clothes. And then put the cap back on the jug, and it had a pouring spout, so that you could a little little spigot on it there, and you could use it to fill the ink wells in the classroom, which needed to be done on a weekly basis. So the ink in the ink well was would last, you know, about a week. We used ink pens with steel nibs, and we learned to write carefully. And one of the reasons that the old timers didn't print when they were, excuse me, when they were writing our nation's founding documents, such as the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, was that uh, you know they wrote in cursive. They didn't want to pick the ink pen, the quill pen off the paper any more more often than they had to, or it would blot. And paper was expensive. They didn't waste paper. <laughs> and uh, they certainly didn't use paper for sanitary purposes. Each sheet of paper was valuable. So they they used quill pens. And then later on, I don't know if they had, if they had started making steel nib pens in 1775 and 76 or not. I didn't know. I don't know if they came. Most of them, most gentlemen carried pen knives so that they could trim their pens, and they were careful with the, with the pen. So that's the way it was. The other thing we I mentioned that was caused kind of some consternation with the fellow I was talking with is that there was a disease going around. Now, I don't know if it was diphtheria or tetanus or what it was. There was some disease going around that it was caused a problem. And a nurse came into school, <clears throat> gave everybody shots. They had a big, fat syringe, about the size you'd use for a vet would use today, and the little lines on the side of the syringe, I remember this vividly. And she would she'd stick the syringe in a, in a glass jar, draw up the syringe, and each kid would get a shot, you know, one line on the syringe. Same needle for all the kids. They'd rub your arm with alcohol, jab you with this thing, give you one shot. Next kid would come up and rub his arm jab him and I mean it was a it was a big needle <laughs> and it was also uh, but the thing that got me gets me today and I thought nothing of it at the time was that they used the same needle for everybody in that school and uh, they'd be horrified at that today but everybody seemed to survive it we uh, Ann Barnhart is a Vociferous lady, and uh, plus one eight zero one nine one six six one six one. Mac on. Got something on the on the uh, phone here. In addition to me, I don't know if it's somebody up there at the station or what. Okay, this is the Northern Maine Landman Show, resuming after this brief interruption for technical reasons. 
Uh, I just mentioned Ann Barnhart, and she she's a crusader. I'll tell you, she's a fascinating lady, very smart lady. She's a highly ethical lady. She was a commodities broker on the on the Chicago Board of Exchange. And a few years ago, I guess it must be four years now, she closed down her brokerage firm, went out of business. And she did it, announced she was going to do so beforehand, gave all of her investors and clients plenty of time to make other arrangements. And then uh, she had a couple of stragglers and said, geez, you know, we just want to stay with you. We appreciate your advice. She said, I have to. I'm going to close down. So they, they she returned their investment money to them. Everybody, nobody lost money. And she she left the Chicago Board of Exchange. It's an unusual thing to do. She's, I would guess she's probably 40 years old. That's just a guess based on the photographs that I've seen of her. And uh, very nice, polite lady, but she is can be wrathy at times. So, she... Uh, she posted something on her blog, which is uh, well, it's it's Barnhart.biz, I think. But anyway, uh, you can look her up, Ann Barnhart. You Google her, and you'll find all kinds of stuff. Well, she uh, she is very pro-life. She's very strong Christian. And she was crusading against Planned Parenthood. And there are numerous tapes that have been recorded at Planned Parenthood meetings. Now, today, cameras can be tiny. They have bore scopes that you can put down the barrel of a rifle and examine the rifling inside the barrel. And they can put bore scopes in a spark plug hole and look at the inside of your of your engine where the pistons go up and down. And you can see if there's evidence of detonation or the top of the piston is damaged without disassembling the engine. And they use it in aviation, in jet engines. You stick a bore scope in there and look around and look at the condition of the turbine blades. There's all kinds of different applications. And they're used in medicine. Well... They can also be worn. You put this tiny little uh, pin on your lapel, and it looks like a, pin, a membership pin from some fraternity or some Rotary Club or the Knights of Columbus or something. And that's how tiny they are. But it's a wide-angle lens and high quality. I mean, look at the lens inside your cell phone camera, okay? You look at your cell phone. In that tiny little window, less than a quarter of the size of your little fingernail, I mean, it's a tiny window, takes excellent photographs with your cell phone. It's digital. Well, you can wear these things now. They take it out of the cell phone, essentially, and use that same type of tiny lens. And it takes a picture of everybody at the table when you're sitting there having a conference. And it can be recorded. And... Somebody went into some Planned Parenthood meetings wearing one of these, 
and he got pictures of executives in Planned Parenthood talking about selling body parts from fetuses. And they they can get, you know, $20,000 for a late-term fetal liver. You just harvest all these organs, and hearts, hearts bring good money, and brains, and, uh, you know, they, they take these fetuses, live fetuses, and they they harvest the organs and sell them. So, and it's a it's a terrible thing. Back when I was a young fellow, you know, sometimes a fetus would die and cause an infection, and they would have to they'd have to you know take the fetus. Well, the fetus is definitely dead, and that's that's one thing, you know. And you have to you have to take it because the infection could spread to the mother. You know that tragedy, but that 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 happens, but that would need to be done. However, the harvesting of live fetuses, you know, I don't think there are very many people in our country that think that the harvesting of live fetuses is a good idea. And there are various ways to try to justify it and quibble about it. And it's, you know, it's inconvenient for this mom to to bear the child for whatever reason. But it's legal in our country. And it's certainly legal in China because China has a one-family, one-child policy. And in the in China, there are some words that are being forgotten. And words that are, they choose, they don't allow these words to be printed in stories and in newspaper articles. They just, the, the words are being removed from their lexicon, from their language, their common usage. One of those words is aunt. There are any people in China that have an aunt or an uncle or a niece or a nephew. So it's just, you know, no cousins. No cousins. Kids in China don't have cousins. Because their parents don't have any brothers and sisters to have children. So there's no need for the word cousin in China. And if you look at a family tree, they're pretty vertical. <laughs> Not many branches. You can trace back to the parents, you know, go way back, but there aren't any other branches off off of that tree. No cousins, no aunts and uncles. So the reason, well, they, one of the reasons that they accomplish this is the, they abort all children after the first child. If uh, mom gets pregnant again, she has to go in for an abortion. And they do that. It's the law. They have chosen this way to control their population. Well, most parents want to have sons because in their culture, sons are more important than daughters in China and in many parts of the world. So they choose, if they, if they discover through ultrasound that this child can't, you know, early on, 
first couple of three months, they can't tell whether it's going to be a boy or a girl. You can't tell. But later on, they can tell. They choose, if, if it's a girl, they choose to abort the, the fetus. Once in a while, they make a mistake. Whoops, it turned out to be a boy. Well, they grab that as a charity, as a disaster, you know, a tragedy. If they aborted a boy, some or some people, uh, they have uh, they have twins. And in China, they have passed a rule that if a woman is pregnant with twins, they they don't have to abort the pregnancy and take both of them. They just if it's twins, they'll let them live if the parents haven't had any children yet. So if their first pregnancy results in twins, that's a wonderful thing for that family. But, uh, you know, if they've already have a child of either sex and they turn out she gets pregnant again, they don't bother checking to see if it's twins or not. That's that's it. It's, they lose two and three if it's triplets. So Ann Barnhart wrote about this, and nothing I've said up to this point should be news to anybody. The fact that they sell fetal tissue, they call it tissue, and I choose to call them organs because they're not selling, just selling tissue. It, uh, they're selling the various specific organs for a specific fee. And the higher the, the higher the, uh, the older the fetus, if you will, the further along in term uh, the fetus is, the higher the value of the organ, such as the liver. And and that, uh, so they prefer to delay the abortion until the organs are worth more. So they convince the mom, you know, to wait another month or two and then have it because because uh, they don't tell the mom it's because we can get more money for the organs. <laughs> Moms don't know that the organs are being sold by Planned Parenthood. And all this is, you know, this is documented. You can sit there and call it up on YouTube and look at these videos of these of these executives in Planned Parenthood. And one of them says, well, you know, five more livers and I can buy a Lamborghini. And that's the business they're in. They're a cult of death. I saw a, a car this past week. I had a man that I met for business purposes. He had a sign in the rear window of his vehicle. It says, King Herod was the founder of Planned Parenthood. For those that may not be familiar with or remember the name, King Herod was the, was the Roman king who ruled over Israel uh, at the time of Christ, when Christ was born. And over, and there was a big rumor going around that that the Savior had been born already and was alive now, today. And, and uh, Mary and Joseph were warned to, to leave and go to Egypt. Now, at the time, 
Egypt was not on the other side of what is now the Suez Canal. Egypt was where the Gaza Strip is now. That was Egypt. And the whole Sinai south of of Gaza was Egypt. So Egypt wasn't a vast journey at the time. It was get out of town from Bethlehem and and all of the Bethlehem suburbs in Jerusalem. And uh, if you look at a biblical map, you know, all of those famous places are clustered right around Jerusalem, almost like suburbs. So Mary and Joseph took the baby Jesus and went down to Egypt until until it was safe to return. And then they came back up to Bethlehem and uh, in Jerusalem, in that area. Up to be carpenter and our savior. So King Herod founded essentially, you know, infanticide and the killing of of infants. And it's it's a business practice in our country today, and it's a business practice in China. But in China the livers and organs are not uh, being used for scientific or medicinal purposes except on the personal level because the fetuses are being sold intact as food. And they get big prices. And if they can get a male fetus that was aborted at five months or more, worth $25,000 and they stew it and eat it and it, it's it's in their culture it's in their superstition that uh, this will give you power and it's not uncommon in Asia it's not well publicized but uh, you know outside of Asia and even in Asia they, they say you know we don't talk about this it just happens, but we don't talk about this. It's impolite. Because they don't know what's wrong. But this happens. So, we, uh, <clears throat> I was down on, right on the South China Sea, where one of the rivers runs into the South China Sea, and I landed my helicopter 45 years ago. And uh, they wanted me to fly two bodies up to my base up at Nabe because there'd been a there'd been a battle with the, with the BC and they'd killed some important BC people big shots and they uh, I said well what happened to them and these were mercenaries that uh, had killed these two big shot BC and there was a each each uh both of the of the dead BC had had uh, a large incision on the right side of their abdomen, just below the rib cage. They were identical to each other. I said, "What happened to those guys?" You know, oh, the Khmers eat the livers. They would they'd take part of the liver and cook it over the fire on a stick and eat the liver. 
made made them powerful. And this is nothing new in the world. It, it's it's a relatively common belief in many parts of the world. And uh, you overcome and gain the strength that your enemy had uh, by this method. I could be much more specific. I choose not to be. And if it horrifies some of my listeners, I'm sorry. But this is the truth in the world today. And this is, it's, it's a part of uh, my background that I understand. And uh, I wish these things didn't happen. But they do happen in this world. There is evil in this world. And it is prospering and it is growing. And there is going to come a comeuppance. And those nations who are particularly evil are going to pay a price. Our nation is becoming more and more evil, not better and better, more and more evil. And it, it's, uh, it's a sad thing for those of us who grew up in a different era, you know, the era of of Fonzie and, and the Brady Bunch and where normal families were uh were shown as as uh being reputable and noble. Remember one one show that I saw, I think it was the Brady Bunch years ago when they uh this father was brought in uh, to talk to the IRS. And he said, I can't imagine. I, you know, I paid my taxes and I all this stuff. And the guy says, yeah, I, said, I know you did. He says, I, you've got eight kids, right? And he says, yes. He says, how do you do it <laughs> on what you make? And that's, that's the guy from the IRS called him in because he wanted to know how he, how he managed to do this with eight kids. Well, we may do. If we had leftover oatmeal, leftover cream of wheat, leftover Ralston, Ralston Purina, it was a hot cereal with with mixed grains in it. I liked it. Most of the family didn't like it, so we didn't have it very often. We had cream of wheat, and we had oatmeal, and uh, if it was leftover, we'd put it in a a bean can, being them baked beans, we we reused the bean cans for various purposes, and it wasn't a whole lot of recycling back then. And we take take the bean can and we slide the cold cereal out and slice it off about three eighths, half an inch thick, and fry it in bacon fat, a frying pan. And you you fry it for a little while and get hot and get a little bit uh, you know. Turns out turning brown from the heat on one side and flip it over and fry it some more and we'd have butter and maple syrup on it. And that was the meat. We'd have to have that fried in bacon fat. And then, you know, vegetables and whatever whatever we had for the season. We didn't have grapes flown in from Chile. We can fly grapes in from Chile to Hannaford's and it's dollar seventy nine a pound. And then when the grapes have been there for a few days, 
all of a sudden they're 99 cents a pound. Well, they're still pretty good grapes. We buy them at 99 cents a pound. <laughs> My wife will say, go grocery shopping. What, you want anything for groceries? I said, yep, cheap fruit. <laughs> Whatever fruit is on sale, it's all good for you. Found out yesterday that I don't particularly like nectarines. Didn't even know what a nectarine was. Well, sort of like a cross between a a peach and an apple. It looks like an apple. It's like a peach with a pit on the inside. I don't know where they come from. I'm not going to buy any more. But Ann Barnhart has has come out on her blog and her website with photographs of some of the things that I've been speaking about this morning. And I don't know. It's it's the real world. It's what's happening in our country. And I think back when I was a young fellow, if you did something like that, you'd go to jail. That's all it was to it. But there were a lot of things that people were put in jail for that are accepted today and acknowledged and and uh, certified. You can do these things, and it's legal. So I don't know. I don't know what to say. We're going downhill on a slippery slope, and we're picking up speed. There is a bottom. You just can't do this forever. There is a bottom. There will be an end to this. And we're going to go back to the way it used to be. We're going to follow the Constitution, state and federal. Get rid of a couple of the amendments that were made in incorrectly and inappropriately. I mean, they, they passed a constitutional amendment, no drinking. And uh, you couldn't buy beer, you couldn't buy wine, you couldn't buy you couldn't buy spirits. And uh, I don't know what the wineries did during that time out in California. They probably just sold the grapes, the stable grapes. That's uh, something I just don't know about. I never thought about it, never researched it till <laughs> never gave it a thought till this moment. I mean, and uh, but prohibition uh, brought a lot of crime. And then they said, well, this was not a good idea. And they changed it. They took it back. They said, okay, you want to make a brewery? You want to have home brew? Because home brew industry started during Prohibition, people making their own beer. And uh, and they made, they distilled, they made a lot of the Applejack, especially up in northern New England. Applejack was, but uh, can become quite potent. Used to put it out to freeze uh, when it was relatively mild, and they'd let it freeze solid, and then they'd drain it. And what was left was water that had frozen, and what they drained off was the applejack, and it was just a little bit syrupy, and it was potent. <laughs> and they still there are people that still do it as kind of a hobby. We uh, 
there's a lot of controversy going on right now about college debt. College debt is a big problem in our country. Well, we've got a situation now where kids are told they need to go to college. They have to go to college. It's a recruitment thing by the colleges. You've got college professors making $300,000 a year teaching two courses. They're tenured. They sit there at the university and they teach these two courses and they get paid $300,000 a year. Well, we have to pay that. It has to come from somewhere. So they, they take kids out of high school and they loan them large sums of money, $30,000 a year in some schools, to go to places like Bowdoin and Bates, Thomas College. Maine has a lot of colleges. We've got a bunch of universities. And a bunch of private colleges. Well, 1.3 million people. We've got the same population in the state of Maine as the city of Phoenix in Arizona. How many colleges do you think they have in Phoenix? You've got the University of Phoenix. And they serve, you know, the local population. But good grief, you know. We have a lot of colleges in Maine. We pour a huge amount of money. And unfortunately, some kids are told that you need to go to college in order to make your way in the world. College graduates make more than non-college graduates. This used to be true back in the 50s and 60s. It's not true today. The kid goes to the University of Maine at Orono and takes a course in liberal studies or music appreciation and he really appreciates music when he's got four years of it. And he graduates, or she graduates. Now what? They go out there and they apply to get a job. Have you ever in your whole life seen a want ad for a music appreciator? There aren't any. When's the last time you saw an ad in the paper for an anthropologist? People want to hire an anthropologist or a political studies major. Now, political studies has has a market because political candidates hire these people to work on their campaigns. And they're supposed to have some savvy as to how the political system works. And some of them actually do understand how it works. This knowledge is not necessarily a good thing (laughs) because you can manipulate the system. And when you you manipulate the system, it's, it's, uh, there's a word for this. It's called corruption. Because what politicians are supposed to do is meet at the legislature and craft a budget. That's the most important thing they have to do during the whole administrative uh, legislative session is create a budget. Authorize the state to spend money for certain things. Problem is that they get some of these bureaucracies that are institutionalized and for some reason they think that this should continue and these people should be rewarded and get more money than they had last year. When in effect, 
they are a detriment to freedom and prosperity. I personally am an advocate for zero-based budgeting. You take a look at this this agency in state government. Pick one. I don't care which one. Take a look at this agency and say, do we really need this agency? If this agency did not exist, what would be the harm? Do people enjoy working with this agency? Does it benefit all the citizens or a large group of citizens in this state? Maybe we can just do away with this agency. On the federal level, there is some serious examination going on as to why do we have an IRS, Internal Revenue Service. There's no place in the Constitution for any such agency. Why do we have this? Well, we've got an income tax. Somebody has to watch it. The tax tax laws are some 29,000 pages. It's not possible for anybody to fully comply with what they want. And if you try to if you try to, to uh, avoid some of this scrutiny, they'll put you in jail. There was a minister down in Pensacola, Florida, who got on the radio and made a bunch of videos and got on TV, had a TV program going, and he was a popular minister. He was an, he was a uh, an evangelical minister. He had a bunch of volunteers working for him and with him, and then they made some of these people... Uh, you know, they paid these people on an individual basis, and they were uh, part-time people. They'd come in, and they'd work a couple of days, and then they'd homeschool a couple of days and did all kinds of various things. And when they were working, they were they were paid for their time. It's like a stern man on a lobster boat. Well, he's not an employee of that particular owner of the lobster boat. He works... Some days, some days he doesn't. He might work for two or three different uh, lobstermen. Or you might have a carpenter's helper in Maine who works at various odd jobs. Somebody's going to pour a foundation, and the guy that owns the, the concrete foundation company, he's got the truck and he's got the forms, he needs a couple of helpers, he'll call a couple of helpers and pay him cash. For that job, and then they'll go on. They'll work for somebody else, building a deck or putting a new roof on a house. You know, general construction laborers. Oftentimes, they work for themselves. You know, go out there and they'll roof, put a roof on for a guy, or build a whole addition on a house for cash. This is not illegal. And if you go in the bank and you want to make a withdrawal of cash, then the bank is over ten thousand dollars. You're going to buy a used tractor, nice tractor, or a skidder, or a backhoe. 
and it's fourteen thousand dollars. You win the bank, you want fourteen thousand dollars cash. Well, they have to report the fact that you took fourteen thousand dollars out of the bank in your own account, and they have to make a report to the IRS that you withdrew fourteen thousand dollars. Now, if you go in there and you take out nine thousand dollars one day and five thousand the next day, well, the bank doesn't have to report that. But if a pattern develops, like you run a hardware store, okay, or get or a convenience store, most convenience stores have a bank pouch and they put their deposits in the bank every day. It's their net receipts. And they'll need, they'll get money back from the bank. Look, we've got to have you know so many ones and so many fives and so many tens and twenties for the cash registers in the morning when you start up because the guy comes in there with a hundred dollar bill and he buys twenty three dollars worth of gas. They've got to have the change to give the guy the change. And hundred dollar bills are becoming more and more common in our country. Uh, the hundred dollar bill today is like a $20 bill was not very long ago. That's <laughs> just the way it is. Well, these folks, uh, the IRS cracks down on people, and they call this structured uh, structured transactions or something. Or just structuring. This guy is structuring so, they, so that his... Transactions are not reported to the IRS. Now, if you took a certified check from the bank, you know, for a certain $14,000, that would be okay because they can follow the check and see who cashed the check. So this guy goes in and he goes into his bank over in Dover Foscroft and walks in there and there's the $14,000 check that was taken out in in uh, Millinocket. And it gets deposited in in uh, Dover Foxcroft. Well, then they know where that money went. They're wrecking a war on cash. That they don't want people to be using cash. They want all transactions to be recorded, so they can be followed by the IRS. And Congress has taken a good hard look at the IRS and said, you know what? Let's just have a flat tax. Pick a pick a percentage, fourteen percent, eighteen percent of everything that you make goes to the government. Boom. It gets sent in by your employer or by you. Now what Dr. Ron Paul has recommended is that we have a flat tax, say fourteen percent. Yeah, but you get paid by your employer. If you make $800 in a week, okay, 40 hours a week at $20 an hour, 800 bucks. That's what this guy earned. He's a good welder or something. Or he's a truck driver. At the end of the week, his employer pays him for the loads that he carries in his truck, and he gets a check. He's supposed to then send in quarterly 
a check to the government, a portion of what he got. Well, when this guy gets his check for 800 bucks, you know, all of a sudden he's been taking home a check for $417, and now he gets a check for 800 Whoa, boy, Ethel, let's go on a vacation, you know. <laughs> well, but then comes the end of the first quarter, March 31st. He's got to send in a check for... 30 or 40 percent of everything that he earned. Whoa, what are they doing? Taking all this money because a lot of people just don't realize how much they're paying to the federal government. They don't understand it. It's part of the system, and they're accustomed to getting their check for $416 or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, they have to turn around and write a check to the federal government and pay the oil bill, and pay their car bill, car payment, and their house payment, and the insurance on the car, and the insurance on the house, and buy groceries. Get shoes for Billy and and a new dress for Susie. She's going off to school. And the IRS, you know, has built this giant bureaucracy, and they've sent people out to attack conservatives, personally and individually in conservative organizations. And we've got them on tape. And this hatchet lady, Lois Lerner, who was the head of the IRS, well, I don't know. I don't don't have that information, you know. And she erased all of her stuff, just like Hillary, erased all of her tapes and documents. The United States government just sold a bunch of used servers to Red China. And they say they will have deleted the files. The ignoramus that did this didn't delete the files. All he did was delete the addresses to the files so that you could use up the space for another purpose. But all those files, most of the files in there, can still be retrieved through computer forensics. Forensics is studying of evidence, like fingerprints and and DNA. You find out a lot about a person and about his ancestors just by looking at the DNA. You can fill out a, you can send away for a kit for 50 bucks or 200 bucks, depending on who you get. And they'll send you some swabs. You rub the inside of your cheek, send the swab back, and they can do a DNA analysis and tell you who your ancestors were, at least where they came from. You know, they can tell a lot about a person from the DNA. And they can nail you down individually. That was him. No doubt about it. Or her. And they can tell you, that, yep, this is who your parents are. And uh, when I was a substitute, you know, I, I encountered students who didn't know who their parents were or their grandparents, have no idea. They're just like they you know, fell off the turnip truck, as they used to say. The world is changing, not for the better. Out in Ferguson, Missouri this week, the they had a news organization was trying to interview people in Ferguson. And 
they were roughed up by the citizens or denizens or whatever you want to call them from Ferguson and accosted and they weren't able to complete their assignment. So a few oath keepers said, well, you want to go over there? We'll bring you over there. So they went to this particular neighborhood to interview some people. And these were the shopkeepers that the oath keepers had protected last year. And their bakery and their hardware store and their pharmacy and their beer and their liquor store were not vandalized because there was an oath keeper up on a roof with an AR or a shotgun. Not here, fella. You pick another place. Those stores were protected by oath keepers. They were not hired. They were not paid. They did this as a public service because they had taken an oath. When they when they served their country in the past, whether it was law enforcement officer or or marine or a sailor or an air force pilot, they took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. My wife is waving her cell phone at me. It is 9.59. But the Oath Keepers were told, were reported to be hired mercenaries. They're not hired. They're volunteers. Oath Keepers, look them up on the Internet. There is such an organization and... We are people who took our roles and did not discard it at the, at the end of our of our service. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine, broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer and Bangor, Maine. Gonna have a fine weekend. Bring your bring an umbrella just in case. And uh be safe and God bless. Wise men follow him, they rose again. Wise men 